Well, today's scripture reading is a selection from the book of Proverbs. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. The thoughts of the righteous are just, the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors they succeed. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so it doesn't matter if you haven't been here before. It's our last sermon in the sermon series, Wisdom for Living, but it's, a, it's kind of a meta sermon. We're sort of like, so we're, we're tying up all the loose ends, or we're not doing that. We're recognizing that there are ends that are loose that are never meant to be tied. And so we've been doing a series this summer on Proverbs called Wisdom for Living, recognizing that, uh, you know, there is that... Uh, it's, I think, a, a proverb or something from somewhere that says, not from the book of Proverbs, uh, says, may we live in interesting times. And uh, we live in interesting times where none of us thought we would be, and uh, we're trying to live faithfully before God in the face of circumstances and situations where there's not like a very clearly delineated set of rules or one very clear path that we should follow. And so we need wisdom for that. And that's what Proverbs is all about trying to cultivate a heart of, of wisdom, the, the art, not just the science of, of living well, but the art of living well and faithfully before God. Because actually the situations where there's very clear rules, where those apply, where you can sort of line up the Ten Commandments and look at a situation, those are easy. Should I murder? No. Should I commit adultery? No, I should not. Should, should, should I steal? No. Like that's easy. Now actually, what constitutes the extent of theft or of adultery or of, of kind of homicidal uh, action, that actually requires wisdom. But, but in the very clear-cut, straightforward circumstances, the rules do the job. They do the trick. They're perfect and fine. But wisdom is what we need when there's not just, you know, one right answer for us, where there's not just one clear path to take. When, when we're weighing competing values when we're weighing, you know, competing interests, uh, competing claims, that's when we need wisdom. There's a story in, in the Bible, in the book of First Kings, and it's about this person named Rehoboam. And he's the son of King Solomon. He of, you know, King Solomon, he of the Proverbs, he of wisdom, can ask for anything, and he asks God to, to make him wise. So this is his son. And so Solomon dies, and Rehoboam ascends to the throne of the United Kingdom of Israel. Right here, this is in Solomon's rule and his reign. That's when Israel was at its absolute peak, its, its zenith in terms of its political unification and power, in terms of its arts and, and, and its culture. Really, Rehoboam had in, inherited, um, you know, he, he, he came in at the top. 
And so right after he ascends to the throne upon the death of Solomon, a group comes to him who are representing the northern tribes, and they say to him, listen, your father built a, a great kingdom, a powerful kingdom, but he did it on our backs. He worked us way too hard. He drove us way too hard. Lighten our yoke. That's what they're asking for. Don't drive us so hard. And so Rehoboam hears them, and he says, all right, well, let me think on it for three days. And so he consults the elders of the people, and they say, you know, you should listen to their complaints. And then he also consults with uh, the young men who he had grown up with. And they said, listen, these guys are sandbagging it. They're complaining because they're lazy. What you should do is work them even harder. So here's Rehoboam. He's just become king. And no sooner than that, he's faced with this major decision. A, a, a kind of a, a life-defining, a, a, a king-defining decision right there. And he seeks counsel from two groups. One tells him to listen. The other tells him to ignore. So how can he make a decision? There's no, you know, we maybe intuitively think we know what we should do, but there's no rules here. You know, he was the heir of Solomon, and Solomon had worked these people hard. And he was, you know, no, he's the most famous for being wise in all of Scripture. And so Rehoboam, to me, he's a textbook example in the Bible of the necessity of wisdom. The necessity of really having to understand the art of living well and faithfully before God, of leading well too. And so he chose to listen to his peers. He chose to listen to the young men with whom he had grown up. And so practically then, you know, he says to them, he says, all right, here's my answer to you. You say you're being worked too hard. He says, my, fa my father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions, which is very dramatic sounding. Uh, and the effect of that is the, the, the representatives of the northern tribes, they hear this, they go, all right, forget this. We're done. And there is a rebellion and the, the northern tribes divide from the southern tribes. And so you get the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, and they never reunite. So we could say this is a, a decision where having wisdom has drastic, lacking wisdom has drastic negative consequences. Because this kingdom that had been united under his grandfather David and his father Solomon is permanently divided into. And so we need wisdom when we're faced with decisions. And so much of our life, isn't it shaped by the consequences of the decisions? that we make? Should I take this job? Or should I, you know, stay put where I am? Should I move across the street, across the city, across the country, across the world? The stakes of those decisions are very high. The consequences, profound. Should I go to this school? Or should I go to that school? Should I stay with this person? Should we break up? Should we work it out or get divorced? Should I start my own business? Should, should, should I say something in this situation? Shouldn't I? These are all just, all of these decisions that we make, big and small. And what we want when we're making those decisions, when we're faced with difficult decisions especially, what we want is clarity, right? That's so often when we turn to God and we pray. We say, God, I I'm not sure exactly what the right thing to do is. So if you could please just give me clarity, but on top of clarity, give me the peace that what I'm doing is the right thing. 
That's what we want from God. We want clarity. We want peace. But unfortunately, wisdom is not reducible to either of those two things. An example. When I graduated from seminary, I took a job briefly as an executive director of a Christian nonprofit here in town. When I say briefly, I worked there for four days. Uh, And when I say worked, I put that in quotes because I never actually received a paycheck. So I guess I volunteered. uh, But I don't blame them for not paying me for those four days of hard work since half of them were spent figuring out how to quit. So, like, I don't think I should have got paid. I don't think I should have got paid for that, to be honest with you. Uh, You know, and this was in 2009, all right? So if you remember 2008, there was the financial crisis. That was bad. But 2009 was like when kind of the consequences really started hitting a lot of businesses, organizations, people, and the church was no different. And I remember I, I, got, I had just graduated from seminary. I was, I was ready to receive a call, and I had just quit this job that I had been planning on going to for like a year and a half, and I got this email from uh, the, the, the denomination I had sent to everyone who was looking for, for jobs, looking for their first job, and they said, listen, times are tough out there. Consider literally taking anything that is offered to you. So that was not like exactly filling you with confidence. Basically, it's a wasteland. It's a jungle out there. Take whatever you can get. Uh, but so it was into that circumstance that I was looking. And I, but I felt like I had made the wise decision. It wasn't easy, but it was clear. So I, made the, I felt like I had made the wise decision. And so I started applying for jobs, and uh, mainly as a youth pa- for youth pastor positions. And soon Amy and I were, were being flown to uh, Ojai, California, Richland, Washington. And on paper, actually, when I looked at the two jobs, the two kind of job descriptions, profiles, looks at the churches, Richland, Washington looked amazing. Like, it just looked like this really good church. It was a really good job. It had so many things going for it. And Ojai, the main thing that I knew about it was my friend had just turned them down um, to work there. So I knew that they were going to be hard up, actually, like looking for someone. So I knew they were desperate, at at least. But I wasn't that impressed. It It didn't move me. But, you know, uh, so Amy and I, we got, we got flown out to these two different places, and our experiences were dramatically different. We're on paper, Richland looked great. In person, it was underwhelming. I don't know, and all due respect to the Tri-Cities of Washington, Richland, Kennewick, Pasco, I'm sure it's a great place, but it wasn't for us. And oh, I, you know, on paper, it was underwhelming, but when we got there, it was just like this magical experience. And so we actually, you know, we got, I was offered both jobs, but the answer seemed to be so clear that God, Ojai was where God was calling me. And you might say, okay, that's an example that you just gave me of where a wise decision was easy. There was clarity. Now there was clarity, but it wasn't easy because there's more to that story. Because while the choice was easy, life was actually hard. Being faithful had costs. You know, we got there, we were lonely. And I say, you know, it was clear that God was calling me to Ojai. Well, you talk to, to Amy, and, and we always, and she's shared this before, like there was a sense that it was clear that I was supposed to be there, but what about her? What was God doing with her there? And I'll never forget one of the Sundays, the, the, one of the first Sundays um, in the first couple months probably, and I was sitting in my office before church started. Um, and we had an 8 a.m. service, actually. That was our first service. So, I mean, you talk about early early church. I had to get there like six in the morning for church, all right? So I'm, I'm sitting in my office, and it's just a picture-perfect, you know, California fall morning. I can look out my window in my office, and I see the mountains, 
And it's probably 70 degrees, just a cool, crisp 70 degrees. So kind of a morning like this morning here, just so beautiful. And I just wanted to get up and run away. And I just thought, these circumstances, should they look perfect. They look like everything I've always wanted. But right now, I just feel like a fish out of water. I just wanted to run away. I wanted to do what I had done a few months before. And just get up, just quit, and, 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 and run away and never turn back. But I didn't. And so a wise choice, sometimes it's obvious. But the consequences are not easy. And sometimes the choice isn't obvious. And the consequences aren't easy. And even when you make the wise and faithful choice, the faithful decision, it doesn't mean that circumstances are just going to be hunky-dory. A wise decision can lead you to difficult places, to dark places. A wise decision can mean seeing a storm ahead and going right into it, into the choppy waters. And so this morning, we're going to be talking about really the limits of our wisdom. And you know, Proverbs, it spends a lot of time, really the first nine chapters, chapter one through nine, are all about just talking about how awesome wisdom is. How it is the most valuable thing in life. It's worth giving it your all to pursue it and to attain it. And then it spends much of the rest of the book, you know, chapter 9 through chapter 31. A lot of that is dedicated to um, kind of specific instances of how you should be wise in particular circumstances. So these little couplets or, 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 you know, phrases, short passages that say, hey, all right, this is how you should deal with work. This is how you should deal with family. This is how you should deal with friendships. This is how you should deal with your emotions. Really specific, practical advice, practical principles. And so a careless reader might read that and think, okay, wisdom, is, it, this is something I can master. I can basically figure it all out and become so wise that no matter what the circumstances, I'm going to know just what to do and just how to get through it. All I have to do is study the scriptures, listen to the sages, uh, you know, apply my rational faculties to weighing all the, the relevant factors and considerations in a, in a situation, I'm going to be able to figure it out. And so while Proverbs, it does present wisdom as something that is desirable and even to a certain degree attainable, it also reminds us that wisdom herself remains elusive, mysterious. You know, before the mind of God, before the, the plans and purposes of God, we're, we're like cats trying to learn multivariable calculus. And so the theme of our scriptures this morning is to then teach us the limits of our wisdom by showing us what we cannot control, what we can control, and lastly, who is in control. And to end on the limits of wisdom, that might seem strange to do after we've spent months really the whole summer, spelling out, okay, what does it mean to be wise in, in this or that given situation or circumstance we, we face? But, but it's not a contradiction. It's just another one of those, those paradoxes that's just at the heart of the Christian faith. And so, you know, one of the things I love about my job is that when I'm preparing for a sermon, it gives me occasion to read, sort of, I, I can sort of follow the rabbit trail wherever it goes. Or if you like Family Circus, it's like Little Billy, the little dotted trail where he gets to go or whatever. Um, so I, you know, I get to do that each and every week, and I never know which way things are going to go. And, and, and so, uh, you know, you'll see, oh, it's talking about this, this book, you get to read that. And so this week I got to read, a, uh, uh, there's this 20th century German 
Old Testament scholar Gerhan van Rad that Matt referenced right in his opening sermon, and it was just perfect because it's like a bow. It ties everything together, how we started and how we're ending. He wrote this book called Wisdom in Israel, and he has a chapter. It was a gift a chapter just on this, The Limits of Wisdom. And it speaks directly to the themes that are at the heart of our scripture this morning. And so he says this. He talks about the paradox. He calls it a dialectic. And, you know, the Germans, they love their dialectics. That means two things that kind of seem like they're in opposition to one another, but actually it's, it's a creative tension. And so he talks about the, the creative tension that, that we need to live with. He says, reduced to its bare essentials, these regulations of theirs, the Israelites, for a fruitful life seem determined by a remarkable dialectic. That means two things that seem like they're in opposition. The first part of the dialectic is this, when it comes to wisdom. Do not hesitate to summon up all your powers in order to familiarize yourself with all the rules which might somehow be effective in life. Ignorance in any form will be detrimental to you. Only the fool thinks he can shut his eyes to this. So that's the first part. Wisdom, you have no excuse but to give it your all to figure out every rule which might apply, every principle which might apply, every circumstance which you might face yourself. You have no excuse to not apply yourself fully trying to gain mastery over it. But here's the other side. Experience, on the other hand, teaches you that you can never be certain. You must always remain open for a completely new experience. You will never become really wise, for in the last resort, this life of yours is determined not by rules, but by God. So here's what Proverbs teaches us about what we cannot control with our plans. It says, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. So the number one thing that we cannot control, no matter how wise we are, is the future. The future is out of our hands. Yes, we can plan. Yes, our plans, they might even come to fruition. That's great when that works out. But the future belongs wholly to God and not to us. And there's this wonderful uh, one of the screw tape letters, which is this book that C.S. Lewis wrote, very creative in that it's like writing from the perspective of these demons trying to basically win, uh, so condemn, win the soul of this person, condemn them. It's a struggle between God and them. It's a very creative book. So when I say the enemy here, that's referring to God. And so they write this letter about the future and, and our human relationship to the future. And it says, the humans live in time, but our enemy, God, destines them to eternity. He therefore, I believe, wants them to attend chiefly to two things, to eternity itself and to that point of time which they call the present. For the present is the point at which time touches eternity. Of the present moment and of it only, humans have an experience analogous to the experience which our enemy has of reality as a whole. In it alone, freedom and actuality are offered him. He would therefore have them continually concerned either with eternity, which means being concerned with him, or with the present, either meditating on their eternal with or separation from himself, or else obeying the present voice of conscience, bearing the present cross, receiving the present grace, and giving thanks for the present pleasure. Our business, that is the diabolical business, is to get them away from the eternal and from the present. With this view, with this in view, we sometimes tempt a human, say, a widow or a scholar, to live in the past. But this is of limited value, for they have some real knowledge of the past, and it has a determinate nature, and to that extent resembles eternity. It's far better to make them live in the future. Biological necessity makes all their passions point in this direction already, so that thought about the future inflames hope and fear. Also, it is unknown to them 
so that in making them think about it, we make them think of unrealities. In a word, the future is, of all things, the thing least like eternity. It is the most completely temporal part of time. For the past is frozen and no longer flows, and the present is all lit up with eternal rays. Hence, nearly all vices are rooted in the future. Gratitude looks to the past and love to the present. Fear, avarice, lust, and ambition look ahead. I love that. Right? The future is that which is most unreal. And we we know this from experience. Because when we think about the future, the future is full of a lot of guessing about things which might happen. And I don't know about you, but if you're like me, uh, there is a tendency to think that what is going to happen in the future is the other shoe at some point is going to drop. And so you spend a lot of time thinking about bad things that are going to happen instead of focusing on, on the present. And the present, they call it the present for a reason, because it's a gift. I think Ted Lasso just said that. But it's a good point. And season two, all right, we can talk about season two later, but, uh, but it's a true statement. So we cannot control the future, so wisdom means living for today. And Proverbs is clear, no matter how much we plan, no matter how correct even our course of action seems, we ultimately can't control something else. So we can't control the future, neither can we control the outcome of what happens. And I think that's maybe the greatest thread that, that ties all of these different um, scripture passages together, these verses together this morning, that, that we cannot control the outcome. That's outside of our purview. You know, this just string of verses together. It says, the plans of the heart belong to man. Plans belong to us. But the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And so if I were to sum all of this up with a phrase, it would be this, that that man proposes, but God disposes. So no matter how much we plan, circumstances, events, outcomes, ultimately outside of our control. We had a plan going into 2020, and we had to elevate campaign. It popped off, successful. We were going to continue. Ministry was just going to keep going. We're going to keep crushing it, everything up and to the right, right? That's how it goes. Everything's going to be looking good. You know, who knows? My gosh. And not just, you know, not just people attending and giving and all that sort of stuff, but like advancing our ministry, right? Small groups and engagement in our community, all those things. We we just had this great plan. And then events, circumstances interceded. And what it meant to be wise, what it meant to be faithful, what it meant to plan changed completely. All that planning changed in an instant. And Matt and I, we both planted churches. And when you do that, you have to come up with a well-conceived project plan. And you do this, you know, you think about, you, you go into it, and you don't get approved unless you have kind of experience, and there's a, a scripture undergirding it, and, and there's prayer poured into it. And, and, you know, we do that, and we go out into it, and then our plans meet reality. 
And our plans did not go according to our plans. So here's wisdom. No matter how smart we are, how faithful we are, how strong we are, how spiritual we are, how friendly we are, how prayerful we are, how diligent we are, at the end of the day, wisdom means understanding how many things are just outside of our control. It's not an excuse for fatalism. Just throwing up your hands and going, well, I don't know, it's going to work out, so I guess I shouldn't even try. That's not the lesson. But if we're free, if we're freed from trying to control the things that we cannot control, that frees us to actually control the things that we can. That's wisdom. And so according to Proverbs, can't control the future, can't control the outcomes, but what can we control? What we see in, in, in our passage this morning is, is that we can control our character, we can control our counsel, and we can control our commitment. And so wise planning it involves the kind of character that, that we shape. It says, the integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. The thoughts of the righteous are just, the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. And so character, we can cultivate character. That's who we are when no one's looking, right? Who, who, we, who we become by the small decisions to be faithful and the incremental decisions we make to be faithful that add up over time. And so wise plans, they come from good character, but good character also enables us to live faithfully even in the midst of the storms, the doubt, the uncertainty, the struggles, all of that. Character can determine how, how we live, even when things are not going according to plans. So you can control your character. You can also control the counsel you keep and the counsel you seek. It says, the, the, the way of a fool is right in its own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. And so there's this, the, the, the folly, the, the, the wicked, there's this arrogance that comes with thinking that you've got it all figured out. That you can make a decision without hearing from wise people who, who know what they're talking about. And Rehoboam's problem, to bring it back to him, his problem wasn't that he sought counsel. He, he did that. He, he got plenty of counsel. It's who he listened to. He listened to the people who were just like him. And so who were going to see things in exactly the same way that he did. And tell him what he wanted, just what he wanted to hear. Instead of what he needed to hear. And so, you know, wise counselors, what are these kind of people? They're, they're people who know what they're talking about. They've got experience and expertise. Anyone can just run their mouth about anything, right? So you want someone who knows kind of what they're talking about, too. And, 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 and wise counselors, they're honest. They're, they're, they're willing to speak their mind. Uh, wise counselors are also open to this perspective of others. They don't insist on getting their way. Wise counselors are deeply committed to both truth and love. They appreciate the, the complexity and, and the nuance of each situation along with the simple need to always seek the Lord, always listen to his voice. Wise counselors are not worried with, with getting credit, but instead with giving it. And they're not arrogant thinking that they know best, that they're, they're humble. They recognize, what makes them wise is they too recognize the limits of their knowledge. So we can control our character, we can control counsel, and finally we can control our commitment. It says, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. It says, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty, basically doesn't plan at all, comes only to poverty. So we're not ultimately responsible for outcomes beyond our control, but we are responsible for uh, the effort we put into the planning 
process and its execution. We, we are responsible for that. You know, the farmer cannot control the weather. But that person can control how hard they work the ground, how they till it, how they prepare it, where, where they plant, what they do. A coach cannot control if his team wins the game. But he can help them at practice and prepare and be in the right kind of mental uh, mindset and, and physically uh, prepare so they have their chance to perform their absolute best. It's the kind of wisdom, uh, this type of wisdom that's talking about here, what we can and can't control. It, to me, it reminds me exactly of, of what we see in the, the serenity prayer. You know, that's associated with the recovery movement. And it is one of those prayers that's actually correctly attributed to the person who wrote it, which is one of those strange things. Abraham Lincoln didn't do this. Mark Twain didn't do this. No, uh, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr actually wrote the serenity prayer or a version very close to the one that we use. And so I'm just slightly tweaking it. But saying, you know, the serenity prayer is, you know, God grant me the serenity to accept the things, and I'm saying cannot control, and that it's cannot change, but grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot control, the courage to control the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So that's important. So we've looked at, you know, what we can control, what we can't control, but ultimately, lastly, at the end of the day, it's about who is in control. Because Christians don't believe ultimately things are, you know, they're just left up to kind of blind fade or, or chance or happenstance. That's the way of despair. That's the way of hopelessness. There's this phrase out there, you know, people get red-pilled now. Then there's even a phrase black-pilled, which is someone who just basically becomes a nihilist. They look, at, they look at the world, they look at the way things are going, they go, you know, kind of LOL, nothing matters. Like, who cares? That's, that's, that's not the way of Christ. Wisdom comes from knowing that, that God is God, we're not. So ultimately it's God that's in control. That's not a facile statement. It's not in a way to say, hey, listen, whatever happens, happens, and sort of we can just read God's will off of particular circumstances. We don't do that. That's folly. But, but it's in the sense that we believe that in the end, when we're looking backwards at, at the culmination of all things, we will understand that, that it's God's will that was done. And his kingdom that came on earth as it is in heaven, even when our best laid plans crashed and burned or just seemingly resulted in complete and total failure. We have to remember that it was, how, how, how did Christ get the crown? He, he went through the cross, which seemed like everyone, to everyone who's experiencing it, like a total disaster, complete failure. And that's how God achieved his purposes, to reconcile us to himself. It's the Christian doctrine of providence, the belief that despite appearances to the contrary, God upholds, he preserves, he directs all creation towards his own ends. You know, the whole world is a stage. We're, we're just actors kind of playing our parts. God's the ultimate playwright. He's got the script written. It's going to end good. And the verse to me that sums all this up is this. It says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So ultimately, wisdom means that we're not trusting in ourselves, we're not trusting in our plans, we're not trusting in our own wisdom and ingenuity, that we do our absolute best to, to try to figure out with what we've got, the resources at hand, we do our best to plan, we do our best to execute. But our trust is in the Lord who made heaven and earth. Our trust is in the one whom Paul says, you know, the one who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Our trust is that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. 
And so the wisest thing that we can do is, yes, we can, we can push ourselves to the limit, but then we embrace our limitations and we pray for the wisdom to know the difference. And so I close with these words uh, from Gerhard von Rad. He said, The fear of God, which is one of those central themes, the first thing in the first sermon, the fear of the Lord, the fear of God, not only enabled man to acquire knowledge, but also had a predominantly critical function in that it kept awake in the person acquiring the knowledge the awareness that her intellect was directed towards a world in which mystery predominated. This humility, this epistemic humility that we're not going to be able to figure everything out. So we better fear God. And that's why it says that the fear of the Lord in Proverbs, the refrain is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But we see here, it's also the end of wisdom as well. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.